Hello and welcome to Guru Please, the show about pushing the limits of life and stepping up to live with more meaning, more purpose, and more passion. I'm your host, Jessica Sun. I'm thrilled to introduce Ricky DeRiz. Ricky is a life, spirituality, and wellness coach. He writes about spirituality, philosophy, mindfulness, meditation, and psychology in his blog, Mind That Ego. Welcome to the show, Ricky. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, so I heard about your work through a blog post you did on Tiny Buddha, and then I found out about your book, Mindsets for Mindfulness, and it was mind-blowing, just, Mm -hmm. you know, how much you really packed into that. But I want to start off this conversation with your own kind of personal journey. Mm -hmm. What led you to discovering, you know, spirituality and about consciousness. Talk about where you were at before and what kind of sparked this interest. I think it's, it's good. A uh, good starting point is to note the subheading of the book is awakening from crisis to higher consciousness. And that sums it up quite well. It's the, the process for me has been one of depression, uh, anxiety, and a lot of suffering throughout my life that actually allowed me to eventually, having worked through a lot of difficult stuff, kind of pull through the other side in in certain ways. I first experienced what I I would kind of refer to as depression around the age of 15. And I think it was around the age of 18 that I I first went on antidepressants and and had kind of suicidal ideation. And I I guess we go way into the deep end, like straight on (laughs) with this stuff. No um, fluff. No, no fluff straight into it. But yeah, that was really like from, from a, you know, my adolescence and into young adulthood, it was a real struggle with, with my mental health and a lot of questioning around the existential. It kind of happened that one thing heaped on top of the other. And, and eventually I had a, a panic disorder as well. At the height of that, I would say I, w- I was having two or three panic attacks every day. Mm-hmm. And even experienced psychosis when I was at university. Mm-hmm. So it was a really intrusive and prevalent and ongoing battle with my mental health that, that I faced. And throughout all of it, there was always a question in, you know, of is this just something wrong with me? Is this just a malfunction or is there more to it? And at the same time, I had a almost a simultaneous interest in, in self-development and looking into self-help and just trying to find even like the smallest thing, even the smallest thing that might help. As I was kind of going through all these ups and downs, I was, I was trying desperately to, to understand. And that's really what has has led me to, to where I am now. And it was through the spell when I had psychosis that I got into meditation that was around eight or nine years ago. And so many curious, like synchronicities and experiences shifted me from what I would call like a a scientifically minded, although that term itself is is limited in terms of the scope of science, and atheistic, at least that's what I would tell myself, that was the label I would apply, you know, and I felt that I almost made this link between being intellectual and being quite cynical towards spirituality. And it was through like the, the depression and anxiety really made me question a lot around what makes life meaningful. The psychosis was more of a, 
a, kind of ignited a question around the nature of reality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was then through the meditation that I became incredibly receptive and these kind of barriers that I'd built around my heart, but also around my psyche, the kind of beliefs that I had, they started to erode. And through that, I then felt such a strong connection to a spiritual practice and spiritual reading. And it was like this whole new world opened up. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long journey, but I would say over the last few years, that's, that's where I've reached a, a tipping point mm -hmm. where in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Krishna says to, to Arjuna that the practice itself, the spiritual path can be bitter poison in the beginning and sweet nectar in the end. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's in the last few years I've started to taste the sweet nectar after struggling with the bitter taste almost <laughs> of, of kind of mental illness. Definitely. And it's interesting that you characterize depression as perhaps an opportunity and yeah. that it actually allowed you to really enter the space where you're quote unquote re-enchanted with life. Mm. You know, you have that kind of falling in love with the world kind of sense. Yeah. And it's so beautiful and it's kind of like, okay, well, how did you get from, you know, psychosis, anxiety, panic, depression, suicidal thoughts to, you know, a place now where you seem to be spiritually whole and living like very fully. And I want to talk about, okay, what is the process like and mm. those steps to like this spiritual awakening? It's a great question. And one that is all encompassing and it really talks to the, the need for a kind of foundation of, of metaphysical or at least mindset, approaches in mindset towards the, the path, towards the journey. There are a lot of paradoxes that can keep you stuck. And, and one of the paradoxes, one of the biggest ones is that most of us are really afraid of suffering. We really resist suffering. And when it comes to suffering, it's almost like the only way around is through. You, you have to confront it. Speaking boldly and, and, and kind of directly to my experience, I really just, I got to the point where I had a word with myself and I kind of said, you know, I have these thoughts of suicide frequently. What choice do you want to make? You know, do you want to, do you want to continue to live in, in this kind of ongoing cycle? Or do you want to just give everything that you have to try and to understand this? and learning from it and, and even just getting every centimeter that you can in terms of growth. So I think there was a, in the midst of, of psychosis, some interesting experiences with dreams. And, you know, I, I was hearing voices at this time and some of them were actually reassuring. Most of them weren't, <laughs> but some were reassuring. And there was like a, a sense of, of connection, something that I'd felt actually, this reminds me as well, when I was 18, uh, and I, I, I was contemplating suicide. I had this really, at one point, really calming, expansive experience, like something outside of, of my normal consciousness just came over me, almost like a, a, a moment of sobriety. Like I just felt like I just woke up in that moment and was like, oh, that was strange. And then the loop, the, the, the intrusive loop this ideation stopped in that moment and I moved on and I, and I, I you know, I continued and I survived and, and carried on. So point being, I, I think it's really important to, in the beginning, understand that as a society, we have certain approaches to 
happiness and to, to wellness and to well-being that aren't actually in our best interests. And that if we can learn to embrace the suffering and not, and this is very much the Buddhist um, approach of equanimity and, and the middle way that the Buddha taught, if we can embrace suffering and not crave like happiness and not be overly resistant towards difficult feelings, that's going to lead us down a, a fulfilling path rather than trying to overcompensate, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever wonder or do you wonder what caused your suffering? Or have you ever felt like, why am I the one with these suicidal thoughts? Everyone else seems yeah. fine and yeah. joyous, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, th this is a real difficult thing to grapple with when every day is a challenge. Uh, and it's a you know one of the the most challenging and and draining things is this facade that that feels almost necessary mm -hmm. to appear not even happy but to just to appear quote unquote normal and there is that sense of of disconnect from seemingly everyone else who seems to have everything together mm -hmm. and i think that's a really important realization when you start to kind of explore within the self and you understand and and you can see different areas that, that need exploring and you can see how this facade is like a defense mechanism that's almost hiding the suffering not only from others but from yourself as well mm. so I certainly felt a lot of frustration I certainly felt a lot of bitterness uh, a kind of why like why can't I just feel normal and you know as part of this this process in terms of what contributed I would say it was a, a a huge combination of things, huge combination. A big thing was unresolved grief in, and generally just a real, a lack of emotional regulation that built up. There are a lot of really very traumatic experiences that I, I face from the age of like 13 to 21. Mm -hmm. uh, I lost a lot of people that I loved. And I, and I also, you know, I experienced like one of those losses was at the time, my, my girlfriend's mum died. And in that moment, I remember this almost a, a fragmentation because I couldn't validate my own feelings. I, I was unable to validate how I felt because I felt I don't deserve to grieve as she does. She's the one that she's lost her mother. I don't deserve grief. So I think this started almost like a disconnect between one part of my psyche and my, my feeling. And Carl Jung talks about the four psychological functions, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking, feeling, sensing, and intuiting. And a lot of neurosis and a lot of suffering is caused from a fracture between these. So I feel that in retrospect, grief and, and unresolved sadness, even like a real fear around anxiety, so many things cause me to disconnect from my feeling, from my sensing, combined with society that really emphasizes the intellect, emphasizes the mind, emphasizes mm -hmm. rationality. Mm -hmm. added to the worldview that I had which was very much disenchanted and it just became like the perfect storm of of, of depression mm. I would say mm -hmm. yeah and it sounds like you can really understand it and see that big picture in hindsight now that you kind of passed it but at the time it just it's hard to explain what's going on it's hard to define or even understand at all you know everything just seems mm -hmm. like it's crashing down you believe um, as you just said that what most of us seek 
is beyond the ego, beyond the mind. But we live in a society that really prioritizes intellect, you know, intellectual understanding, thinking through things, logic, reasoning. What lies beyond that? Because many would say that that is the epitome of being. Yeah, I would say it's the it's the epitome of the Western functioning ego, or like a, a very functioning, potentially self-aware, emotionally intelligent being in the Western world. I would say if you if you look to the East, you'll see that they they view things differently, and that's just one rung of a, a much more expansive kind of ascension in consciousness and, and mm-hmm. higher consciousness. But even in the West, you know, today is, is, I think it's 51 years since Abraham Maslow passed away. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually posted this on Instagram because towards the end of his life, he, he really felt dissatisfied with the hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. He felt it was misunderstood. He felt self-actualization was, wasn't really directing people to the place that he, he intended to. And he felt some frustration around that. Mm-hmm. And roughly two years before he died, he had a, another significant heart attack. He survived and it really made him reassess his life. And, and he spoke of, he called it the post-mortem life, where he entered a, a transcendent uh, state that he called the plateau experience, which was like a lot more serene, a lot more connected, but kind of distant in a healthy, detached way beyond the ego. And it caused him to, to rethink a lot of his theories. And he, eventually he added self-transcendence. Now, the thing is, mm-hmm. if you look, you rarely see self-transcendence on the hierarchy of needs because most of what we know come from his journal entries around that time. Mm-hmm. And the thing I find fascinating, right? And I, I, I just, this blows my mind. I feel, I feel like there's a mystical element to this. He was journaling, that just before he died, he was journaling and he was inspired by this theory. And, and he happened to die in that moment, but he left behind just enough breadcrumbs to show this link between the Western approach and the Eastern approach and this real need for the transpersonal, this real need to transcend the ego. So as you go up the hierarchy, I was listening to a talk by, by Ken Wilbur the other day, and he talks of, of spiral dynamics. Mm-hmm. These hierarchies of growth in consciousness more accurately called, I think it's holarchy. I think that's the right, the right term. Mm-hmm. What that means is it every stage incorporates and integrates the previous stage, right? Yeah. So yeah. with the, the hierarchy of needs, as you get towards self-actualization, if you're quote unquote doing it right, because Maslow felt a lot of people intellectualize the process. If you're, if you're following the, mm. the behaviors of actualization, you become more selfless, more altruistic, you have more empathy, not only for others, but for, for humanity as a whole. So there's a real, really crucial need to, to discern and to distinguish the difference between individualism from like a capitalistic, I'm out for myself. I want to be, succeed. I want to do this. I want to do that. Mm-hmm. And a, a self-transcendent, self-realized approach where you go beyond the individual egoic approach to life into one that is more compassionate towards humanity and even the cosmos as a whole. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that tangibly look like in terms of how your day operates? Or you know, does it mean you need to 
quit your job and live in the mountains or, you know, become a monk or, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of image of what we might think of. I think that the key is integration. Mm -hmm. There's the, the, the Buddhist uh, quote of like chop wood, carry water. This idea that like post enlightenment, you get on with what you were doing before. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's, it's so easy to get carried away. It's so easy to, to have these, these almost potentially grandiose ideas. If you develop a spiritual ego, right? You're having mystical experiences. You can then aggrandize the ego and get stuck there. So it's important to, I feel, develop virtues or, or, or a kind of spiritual way of being that is an ongoing process throughout the entirety of life. If that reveals a different path, if that reveals something that feels really true, like a, a change in career or a change of lifestyle, then that's something to be followed. But in terms of like an idea of what it means to, to be actualized or self-transcendent, I think it's so important to be humble and to have humility and to do what you can. And, and to, um, I, I, I feel trying to imbue like your, your day-to-day -day living with that as best as you can rather than than feel that you have to to change the world even because we can get these ideas i mean i i can get these ideas sometimes <laughs> right like writing a book yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna change the world <laughs> but yeah i think it, it's not a hobby like the, the spiritual path isn't a hobby it's a, it's a, a way of being mm -hmm. and, an, and an ever ongoing process what's your relationship with goals then and the the idea of the future that's a great question. The see this this I, I see this a lot, especially people that have read like Eckhart Tolle and the idea of psychological time. There's a great misconception, I feel, around the nature of goal setting. And I'll speak to, to my experience. Like I'm a very driven individual. I, I like to have goals, but what I really have to work on is not becoming attached to set outcomes. So it's this kind of balancing act I find in, in my life between the difference of an intention. What is my intention? How do I want to be? And I think Eckhart Tolle speaks to this, the difference between being and doing. How do I want to be in my life? And what things would I like to experience through who I'm being? And, and allow that to kind of infuse whatever, whatever happens. And I think it's healthy to set goals. You know, we, we are also beings that want to grow. We, we want to feel challenged. We want to feel fulfilled. So it's crucial to have goals. But if they become the source or the outcome of your fulfillment, that will lead to suffering. Like I, I've experienced this myself. I think I, I wrote about the uh, Olympians depression. There's like a thing in mm. psychology, right? Where so many gold medal winning athletes yeah. sink into depression because they reach the pinnacle. Yep. And then they're like, well, now what? So if you can, you can, uh, by being more present, by being connected to the present, you almost connect deeper with your values. Those values can then inform your intentions and like goals naturally then surface, but there's, at least in my, my consciousness, it's a lot lighter, the process. It, it's, it's more of this like effortless effort approach rather than constantly striving. And the interesting thing is I found that the more I relax, the more happens yeah you know this and, and I can work more as well the more relaxed I am I actually end up doing more work right but but I, it's this again a paradox of 
of kind of spiritual productivity. <laughs> I know. It is so interesting. It's like when you detach from the outcome, you actually get more of the outcome and yet you're yes. attached still. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's it. Because it, it's not that these, you know, these things can still bring joy yeah, and they can still be enjoyed and they can still add color to life, but it's just making that really subtle shift that they don't define life, that you're not the product of what goals you achieve. Mm-hmm. And that it's all, it's that kind of equanimous approach of if it happens, that's a bonus. If not, ideally you'll learn from it. Mm-hmm. Maybe not even care it will all be part of a growth opportunity ultimately so let's just talk about maybe the last time you didn't succeed at something like a goal you set Mm -hmm. how did you respond to it I honestly I feel and you might relate to this right I feel like as a content creator I'm failing goals I set all the time (laughs) (laughs) like all the time I feel like all I do with mind that ego is set goals and fail and then just try and learn from them right like I so it's really interesting. I, I went through a process where like mind that ego is a labor of love, mm-hmm. a passion project is something that I, I really, I really give my all to, but even that I've had to create some distance from mm-hmm. because I, I found that the more attached I was, like I kind of internalized this idea and I noticed it recently. I internalized this idea of being a teacher mm-hmm. of being someone that people are listening to. And that, because it became a concept, it added pressure to what I was doing. And I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't being fully authentic. I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. Mm-hmm. And this has just happened over time. And I feel that also the process of, of trying to monetize that hasn't gone so well in terms of the actual content. Mm-hmm. And it's always a balancing act for me of like, oh, it's a passion project, but I want to monetize the blog or I want to do online courses or, or this or that. I'm feeling like this idea is going to be the one like this and it's not like i'm not it's not present always but absolutely like if i write an article i'm convinced this is this is going to go viral like i'm probably going to get offered a book deal like who knows what's going to happen right yeah it's just there it's this little voice (laughs) strutting around yeah yeah, it's just like yeah of course you're gonna get you're gonna get published soon i'm brilliant (laughs) yeah i'm amazing yeah look at all these insights that i'm having (laughs) So it is, it's how the ego, how ironic, like in mind, that ego creation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the ego adapted to that. So mm-hmm. I think I, I realized that I was putting too much pressure on myself. I was becoming overly concerned with how, what I was producing was being received even, and like, I, I don't speak to many people about this, but even like losing newsletter followers, I'd feel a bit of a sting. And that was when I realized, like, like someone unfollowed, someone that I, I, I actually know uh, vaguely, kind of an acquaintance unfollowed me on my mailing list. And I was like, oh, what have I done wrong? Like, that was my, that was my go-to thought. Mm-hmm. And that led to then a, a, a kind of reassessment of what am I really, like, can I, can I reconnect to that passion? Mm-hmm. Can I, in terms of goals, can I create freely? Can I create openly? And then just see what happens. Yeah. And then, you know, rather than mind that ego has to be something. I had this real surrender and this liberation of maybe this is it. Maybe this is it. Like, isn't that great? Like, maybe this is it. Like, I can ease all this pressure. Like, maybe this is it, you know? And, and even like being invited on this podcast, that in itself is, is incredible. It's incredible. It's something I couldn't imagine 
you know, five, 10 years ago at all. So, so it's, mm. it's reconnecting to that kind of innocence of, of the, the creative process. Mm-hmm. And I find that that was part of the learning, that, that reconnection, but always in every single perceived failure, I will find some nugget from that to learn from, even if it is, you know, the, the revelation of what expectations I had that were unconscious or, or subtly conscious yeah. at the moment of like a course release or an article, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like you're still maybe even more enthused by what you're doing because the pressure's off. It doesn't need to be anything other than yeah. what it is, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that, re- that kind of reverse psychology then of, as you feel easier and you feel more comfortable, then you, you just, it, it, you know, creativity flows yeah. without that kind of pressure added. Exactly. And then to continue living into that because yeah. the ego will just come in and use whatever it can to yeah. <laughs> gain power, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, if you're doing better or it seems like you're more popular, people listening to you, suddenly it can grab a hold again and it's like a constant like mm-hmm. remembrance of like okay coming back to yeah uh, it is what it is you know absolutely yeah you brought up the idea of identity mm-hmm. a bit like just now where you said you were really into the idea of being a teacher mm-hmm. and having people listening to you being that guide and almost like letting that go so i want to ask you what do you identify with now, if not a content creator teacher? If I'm doing my practice right, nothing. <laughs> oh. If I'm if I'm doing my practice right, no identity. No, not uh, no identity, but not merging my identity with anything that I'm doing. This is very much from uh, from the the kind of non dual perspective of I am, I am that. I think Ram Das says. Anything you add after I am is ego-based. It's a form of identity. It's a form of attachment. It's not that I, I, I'm absolutely not in this space where I'm free of identity all the time. Like I, I find that it kind of, as you know, the ego adapts. So there might be certain events in life. It could be more success. It could be, it could be a compliment. It could be someone saying, oh, you, you're a really good writer. And then all of a sudden I am a writer, <laughs> you know? And, and so it's like an ongoing process of self-honesty. And the reason I say that is because throughout growth, any sticking point, as you expand in consciousness, any sticking point along the way will likely be related to some form of identity because ultimately our truest essence is beyond what we can identify with, right? And at least in the material, at least in what we're doing. And I talked to that because very recently I made a video that I would not have made probably even six months ago. It, it took a lot of courage for me to put it out there. And the title of the video was Depression Isn't a Thing. And I explain in that video the reason why I arrive at that conclusion. And it's based from, the, again, this Buddhist idea of equanimity, mm-hmm. this idea of disintegrating any label disintegrating any concept to view things as clearly as you can. And I point to this because identity adapts and changes. And I've gone through stages where I've, I've said, I am depressed. I am anxious. I am great. I'm not great. I'm worthless. I'm, I'm worthy. 
Mm -hmm. I'm underappreciated. I am the tortured artist, Mm -hmm. right? And it it develops and it molds and it shapes. And every time I become attached to that, somehow it's, it's talking to a concept that I have in mind and taking me away from reality, taking away, away from my true essence. On a very subtle level, I've also identified with, I am an empath, right? Now that can keep you stuck because if you identify as I am an empath, all of a sudden you're super sensitive to emotion and that is true. And that's something to, to validate independent of the label. But you can then almost create a, a mindset of unfairness or injustice due to this sensitivity, which can keep you stuck. Mm-hmm. So it, it's talking to this idea of a, a label of identity and the life cycle of that. And the importance of initially, if you can get validation of your direct experience through a label or an identity, then that's worthwhile. But it does have a life cycle. And eventually you want to kind of transcend it itself mm. to free you up from any bondage that that, that label might have. Yeah. If, does that make sense? Yeah, it actually reminds me of archetypes where we'll mm, have mm-hmm. archetypes within us, but we're not any one of them all the time. That's brilliant. That's yeah, that's a great link. That is a great link. And that's it with archetypes, right? And and I mentioned like the mindsets in the book as well. They can be tapped into and used skillfully. Yeah. Or as young points out, if if you're not so conscious of them, they can kind of dictate you. They can they can run the scenes from the unconscious. So it is a case of integrating. And and this is also a great point. I like that you brought up brought up archetypes because when we identify with a label it's a form of tunnel vision i'll give it another label that i've identified with which seems worthy it seems worthwhile but actually kept me stuck in many ways and that was i am a nice person mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right what happens to nice people when they get angry what happens oh to nice gosh. people when they have to set boundaries what happens Oof. to nice people when they have to do something that is might potentially upset someone Mm-hmm. but it's in their, their highest good or is in your highest good to express. Yeah. So th- this was a realization, a powerful one for me, that as, as, as if I'm teaching in any moment, if I'm overly attached to being nice, I'm not being as, as adequate a teacher as I could be. And of course, you want compassion. You, you want, absolutely want compassion and empathy and understanding. You don't want to be mean to people, but this tunnel vision that can develop really mm-hmm. creates a shadow. Right. Any identity. Yeah. Oh, there's so many things I want to talk about right now. <laughs> so, okay. When you label something, it's like then you try to be that rather than just be what you are. Yes, exactly. It becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And as we know from, from consciousness and not so much from awareness, which is expansive and, and the container almost of phenomena, but attention. You can pay your attention on so many different things and that will become your reality. So if you really, you know, it is like a form of confirmation bias. It's like a, a certain resonance you might have and you will notice, you're more likely to notice things that resonate with that. Uh, uh, an example that I sometimes use is, you know, if you, if you go out on a day, any given day, and you're feeling really good, you might be wearing like your favorite outfit. You're like, yeah, I'm feeling fresh. So people look at you, you might think, oh, they're looking at me because they think I look cool, right? Mm-hmm. You could do exactly the same. You could have exactly the same experience to the absolute minutest detail. But if you go out that day and you're feeling a bit more self-conscious, 
you're feeling a bit tired, you're not wearing your favorite outfit, you've got creases in your, your shirt, then those, those looks could be interpreted in a completely different way. Yeah. And your reality is then dictated by this resonant belief. And I talked to that because a big part of my psychosis was paranoia, mm. right? So just mm. this underlying assumption that there's somehow something wrong with me. Yeah. And that created my reality to, to an extreme level. It's not, uh, I, I wouldn't wish that on anyone, but that was a real like eye opener to just how much the mind, I think Shakespeare says the mind can create a hell out of heaven or a heaven out of hell. Yeah. Yeah. Does that feel like a bit isolating though? Because I've, I really thought about this idea that we see the world as we are kind of thing. Well, does the world even exist or is it just me seeing me out there? Do you want to go down that rabbit hole? (laughs) (laughs) How far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's like, oh God, everything's a mirror. Yeah. Yeah. We're all one kind of thing. (laughs) Well, well, this is, this is the thing with like non-dual teachings. There, there's, there can be a misconception if, and I, this is a great separation to make. And, and one way of defining the separation is you are not the center of the universe, but you are the universe. Mm-hmm. So the essence of you isn't the ego. So when you're paranoid or when you're, re- when you're in like an ego-based consciousness, then you do feel more self-conscious in, in the way that we tend to understand it. And it's almost like that, that understanding of oneness and connection can be distorted through the ego and it can lead to a lot of suffering. Yeah. When it, in more of a non-dual state, there's this understanding of consciousness being the foundation and primary cause of reality, then there's a lot more sense of freedom and liberation from the, the usual sense of separation in terms of subject and object. But I don't know if that's going down too much of a rabbit hole, but there's this reconciliation to be made between like the individual focus of consciousness mm-hmm. and the underlying awareness that that is indistinguishable from all reality yeah it's like the sense that you hold both together at the same time yeah our humanness and our divinity yeah and and the beauty of that meeting point of the, the you know the messiness the shadow the struggle mm-hmm. and our divinity and, and this is again like reconciling that without deflating or downplaying our potential, which is so much faster than we believe, but also not aggrandizing or or inflating ourselves. And that's why humility is, again, so important along the journey. Yeah, because at every step in the way, we can aggrandize or deflate. Yeah, some kind of distortion. Yeah. 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 You mentioned the shadow what is that? You know, I feel like that's an idea that's been like coming into collective consciousness a bit more, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe just for me, but yeah. What is the shadow? What's shadow work? I think the, the general consensus and when you hear people talk about shadow work, it's an exploration of the parts of the psyche, the parts of ourselves that we've pushed away. We've pushed outside of our conscious mind and that goes into the unconscious. So Carl Jung's definition of this was, exactly that really it's the parts that we've repressed that we see as undesirable Mm -hmm. that don't actually go away we just fail to kind of confront them and face them fully and if we don't confront them if we don't face them that's when they they start to become part of our reality through what Jung's called projection Mm -hmm. or through 
a kind of feedback loop or feedback system where the things in our reality that, that can really trigger us are telling us some truth about the parts of ourselves that we're repressing or suppressing or denying or not embracing. And generally shadow work is exactly that. It's a process of, of turning towards the parts of the psyche that you find fearful, potentially, or disgusting or weird or anything that might lead you to suppressing that part of yourself. Mm-hmm. The, the general, in terms of the work, it really, for me, is something like there is an intelligence I find there's a form of communication from the unconscious uh, young explored a lot around dreams for example there's also the emotional feedback system there are recurring thoughts or images that might point to an unconscious process that needs to be explored so when I want to do shadow work I'll, I'll look at what is it in that moment where I, I maybe lost my temper or I felt just really really kind of unnerved by someone or I felt like there was a behavior that someone displayed that that I really wanted to judge. I look at that as a potential to learn. Like a a good example that I'll use is envy. Yeah. And and I I use envy because we tend to, we tend to branch together jealousy and envy when it comes to, to the emotion. Jealousy is, is a, a fear of losing something that you have. Envy is the feeling that is evoked when you feel that someone has something that you don't have, right? Mm -hmm. Envy is such a great teacher because like, let's say, let's say like for me as a writer, I have a close friend who suddenly they also write and all of a sudden they, they start doing really well and their career takes off. Mm -hmm. And I start to feel like, Oh, if I'm projecting from that, I might be like, well, they don't really deserve it. I'm a better writer than they are. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, they just got lucky. Or like you're projecting like anger or, or kind of downplaying their success. That is a sign. If ever I feel like I'm projecting outward and not taking responsibility, I know to look within and to inquire, right? But envy is, is such a great teacher because it shows us the things that we might actually genuinely care about that we don't realize. Now, it, it could be that we, we, we have to get to the root of that because, for example, if someone has a lot of money, they're financially abundant, it could be that we, we want more financial security or it could be the ego kind of filter in that, but it's something worthy of investigation. Yeah. So anytime that I feel really taken off balance and it happens mostly in relationships, but it, it can happen in, in any context, then I will explore why, mm-hmm. what is the root? Can I get to the root? Now, what I really want to point out is that I've just read a, a book by a woman called Dr. Leanne Whitney, who links Patanjali's Yoga Sutras Mm -hmm. with the work of Carl Jung. Mm -hmm. Jung believed that you could never fully explore the unconscious, that it would never fully reveal itself, right? But in Eastern thought, that's not the approach. The approach is that you can ascend in consciousness and bring everything to the surface. And this was something that she pointed out in this book, that there is a distinction. So I would say that through meditation, through, through deep meditation and contemplation, mindfulness, and being really diligent with self-inquiry, you can actually unpack more and more from the unconscious oh. over time. As in one day there will be no shadow? That's, I think, up for contention. I think it depends where you look. You, you probably get Eastern, some kind of well-known gurus or, or sages would, would 
be seen to have no shadow. I also know there are people in, in the West that, like Ken Wilber, for example, believes or, or teaches that there always will be some form of shadow. Yeah. I think it's safer to go with that option. I think it's safer in the sense that if anyone is ever, ever perceived as infallible, that can create a, a really unhealthy dynamic where, especially if someone's conscious, they could accuse someone of, oh, it's not me because I don't have a shadow. <laughs> <laughs> It's on you, that kind of dynamic, yeah, which yeah. doesn't feel right to me. Um, so I would say to play it safe, assume that there always will be a shadow. One thing I, re- I also want to point out is the shadow isn't just the things that we repress because we're, we're afraid of them necessarily. The shadow can also contain our creative genius. It can contain the parts of ourselves that we're afraid of because they're so powerful. Wow. Right? So that they're, they're so like oh my God, am I capable of that? Yeah. We can be afraid of, of our, our potential as well as the, the, the quote unquote darker elements of being. So that's something to note. A lot of people when they do shadow work, bring up really beneficial and integrate like newfound skills and appreciation for that. Yeah, because we can be just as afraid of success as we are a failure because both are change. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I want to touch on which you mentioned also before which is this different perspective on insanity as we might see that or madness or Mm. you know things like depression psychosis as not being wrong in some sense what's your take on that it's a great question it's it's a great question and it's also like the question of our time i feel understanding and redefining mental illness uh, to, to give a fuller perspective is, is probably the biggest challenge that we're going to face. And I say that because the typical Western worldview and the, the origin of, of mental illness being pathology and only really explored, like when you look at uh, Sigmund Freud, the approach then was to look at there's something wrong with someone that needs fixing. Yeah. Over time, like Carl Jung was a, a kind of pioneer. He's almost a shaman in his own right that started to look at, well, actually, maybe there's more to this. Maybe there's actually a vast intelligence and our growth is what we're looking for. And we can learn about our growth and mental illness can be a portal into that. Mm -hmm. And now we look at positive psychology. We mentioned self-actualization, self-transcendence, this whole spectrum of growth and the fulfillment of potential. There is an overlap now, there's a, a documentary called Crazy Wise, directed by Phil Borges. I've spoken to him a few times on, on my podcast. Now, he, he spent a lot of time with indigenous tribes. Mm-hmm. He was a documentary maker and a, a photographer. And he was struck that in these tribes, the people who were seen as the, the healers or the visionaries or the, the, the wise kind of confidence they were the ones who had experienced schizophrenia or psychosis or non-ordinary states of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Our worldview does not have currently the scope to embrace non-ordinary states of consciousness. Yeah. But there is a growing rich body of research to show that non-ordinary states catalyze growth. And that a lot of the time, our idea of sanity is limited. And again, it goes back to the rational, the logical, this one view of, of what sanity is. So mental illness can be the beginning of a spiritual awakening. Um, I think even, even Plato spoke of divine madness. You're kind of drunk. 
on the divine. You lose your usual functionality, but you can still ground and, and return to, to a more kind of functional state of mind after that, right? And that there's a distinction between that and actual pathology. So I, I don't I want to be clear in saying there are times where people really need support. And there are times where non-ordinary experiences require in-depth support, probably in terms of community, if that's possible, or people that understand these states mm -hmm. so that it can become a learning process as well. But it's not to, to dismiss that there is the scope for people to really, really need support and to have extreme suffering. But there's a lot that we, we don't allow for in our kind of material worldview. And yeah. so many people like worry that they're going mad when they're actually having mystical experiences. And the interesting and the, the, the thing that blows my mind and when I uncovered this stuff, you know, I felt so I like I, even watching Crazy Wise, I was in tears because when you, you grow up and you have, you know, you sense like I'm very intuitive and I could sense stuff outside of the, the usual senses. And I was told that it was in my head, that it was in my imagination. When you go down that rabbit hole. And when you realize that all the, the great teachers like in the East and even people like Jung, William James as well, Abraham Maslow, these pioneers who have shaped our understanding of the psyche and, and psychology, they all viewed our potential as so much more than just the senses and so much more than a link with the material. So as we move into more of a, a quantum dimension and one where consciousness is not just a product of the brain, but is universal, then it really shifts this dynamic of what it means to be mentally ill and what we have to connect to in order to, to heal and move through that. And I feel that if we have a, an expanded worldview, what I call the enchanted worldview, mm -hmm. where these experiences will not be dismissed, no matter how, how far out they sound to some people, that they're heard and they're listened to and they're appreciated that in that subjective reality, that, that experience is valid. Even if it is at a point, like when, when I was hearing voices, it was still my reality. You know, at that time, there were distortions and trauma that had to be resolved around that mm -hmm. to see clearer. But it's being able to validate these non-ordinary experiences and know that another guy, Stanislav Grof, like developed yeah. holotropic yeah. breathwork, mm -hmm. which induces a non-ordinary state that leads to healing and release and growth. Psychedelics also... Yeah. An expansion of consciousness so if we can view mental illness on a spectrum of consciousness mm -hmm. then there's a profound shift in how we approach and how we we find solutions right it's not like it's wrong it's just a different stage or a different like side of the spectrum on consciousness and you know actually that reminds me of when i was just deep in depression there were moments of true beauty where it was like, you know, I wouldn't have seen it this way if not for this, this feeling or this state of consciousness, or I suppose what you would call like a non-ordinary state of consciousness. Depression is a great teacher yeah. and it, it, it levels the playing field. You know, I find it might sound absurd to say it, but a lot of gratitude for the times where I, I've considered suicide in the, having not done that and having stayed alive and gone down the spiritual route and allowed certain parts of me spiritually to die and to grow through that, that creates such a renewed appreciation. And this is what Maslow spoke to. 
Another thing that he said was self-actualization was that he started to consider whether the whole process was just a reconciliation with death. Now there's something in that, there's something in depression, especially the the sense of hopelessness. And, And for me, when I've been really depressed, I literally cannot see a future like I yeah. can't vision oh, yeah. right blank yeah yeah so so we can we can view this right we can view this as there's something wrong you're, you're pathological or could we view it if we were to to really be radical with this could we view it that there's an intelligence and a mechanism that's blocking out the future to say you've got something to deal with right now mm-hmm. there's something in this present moment stop looking to the future to avoid this you've got to look within to understand what's going on and to really, to really understand it. And like you say, these moments of beauty, I agree. It kind of, you know, it's this idea of almost being on your knees and just like, Oh, I cannot put up with this suffering. And then sometimes in those moments, that's when grace appears. That's when even there's just a a subtlety and a receptivity to experience something really small might just feel so profound. And, And that's a great lesson and a great teacher with depression. Yeah. Exactly. And you're just so in tune and you're listening for every nuance at that point. Yeah. 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 So it is, it's almost like this cocoon experience, right? Mm-hmm. You think of your, your ability to visualize. So you're in this almost like um, Jung, Jung has an archetype called the psychoid, uh-huh. which is linked later on in his work. It's linked almost to like the, the unmanifest. And this is a very fresh thought that I had recently. I wonder whether in that state, it's almost like the cycloid archetype, like that depressive state, there's such an acute sense of suffering that we, we kind of access the unmanifest, but from a, a place of suffering, like a lot of advanced non-dual states also enter a similar space. That's why I really pay a lot of attention to psychological safety when people are meditating, mm-hmm. because it's common for people to have these huge expansive experiences and then be like oh now I'm back (laughs) right so so it's it's this need for psychological safety and grounding and I feel depression almost teaches that in a a way that we've been taught to perceive is a certain way but I I do wonder whether there's something more mysterious and intelligent behind that whole process Mm -hmm. I love that you have this attitude of curiosity for it and the sense of, I don't know, and I'm still learning. Okay, I, there's so much I want to talk about. You. You're <laughs> going to have to come back on the podcast. I'd love but, to. Okay, but That'd be awesome. Yeah, I, I had one more kind of thing that I wanted to touch on. Just very briefly, you mentioned the word curiosity. Mm-hmm. If, if there was one word that could become key to growth, key to, to actualization, mm-hmm. curiosity is a contender to be that word mm-hmm. because when when you're curious you're not necessarily afraid when you be- become curious you you start to then move into the observer you then start to create a bit of distance because mm-hmm. if you if you think of the process like if you're curious and you're intrigued then you enter a state of oh i wonder what i can see not i am this this is so bad this is so painful i don't want this i want to escape this pain then you go what is this pain? Mm. Is it all one thing? Or can I break it down into its component parts? Like, are, are there mm-hmm. ebbs and flows in the pain? Are there moments when the pain isn't there? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. What do I even mean by pain? <laughs> I know, yeah. If I break down the label pain. What is there? Maybe it's like a, a tightness in the chest, racing thoughts, a feeling of sadness or a feeling of, of tension in the body. You know, it's really getting to this level of becoming curious to, to the experience fully and wholeheartedly as if you invited it. Mm-hmm. And Eckhart Tolle also speaks about this. And this leads to an acceptance. And through that acceptance then you can grow and then you can transcend. That is so funny because the question I was going to ask you is how do you respond to suffering? It's like when you find yourself in a state of suffering, I feel like curiosity about it is a great response in terms of what is this guest? I mean, even Rumi says emotions are like guests we will welcome and then they go. Yes, yes. It's always coming and going. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, instead of just saying, no, I don't want it, saying, what is happening here? And really seeing all the delicate nuances and mm-hmm. variation and how it ebbs and flows. And it's yeah. always actually different. Like we don't just, it's not just a blanket suffering. It's every time is actually a unique situation mm-hmm. and a unique experience. We never step in the same river twice, right? As yeah. the, the saying yeah. goes, and it's the same with our suffering. Yeah. And that, then it puts you in a place of empowerment as well, because through that curiosity, you then begin to notice patterns, for example. Mm-hmm. And this again goes back to the, the video that I posted around, there's no such thing as depression. This is exactly it. Mm-hmm. If you can understand this point, if anyone can understand this point and apply it, it's, it's such a tonic for growth. You know, this understanding of of the nuances creates a a separation and a curiosity. You spot the patterns and that gives you an idea of where the root is and where the healing can be. Real quick on on the subject of that as well, I would say that as well as acceptance, self-compassion, huge. Yeah. Yeah. Self-compassion. Yeah. It's like also number one. (laughs) They're all number one. (laughs) No, yeah. I actually wanted to bring that up. But you know what? We're going to save it for next time because yes. that's a whole big thing of like, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Just in terms of how we talk to ourselves and how that will literally influence just all our relationships, yeah. what we do, you know, yeah. how we see our time, our life. Yeah. 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 It's a huge topic. And, and I would love to, to talk about it at another point as well, because it is, like you say, it's a game changer. Yeah. A real game changer. Definitely. Thank you, Ricky, for being you, for sharing your light and your wisdom and joining us today. I mean, this has been so wonderful. I I just feel like we went through everything I wanted to go through and more. (laughs) It was a roller coaster, (laughs) wasn't it? (laughs) Oh my God. It's so beautiful. I feel very like connected in tune and yeah. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on.